I was telling Ross on the way up that, you know, anytime you fly in on the big bird, there's pressure because you don't fly in on the big bird somewhere unless people think you're worth flying in on the big bird. And pressure is a hard thing to live up to. And then he goes and says something like that. So uh, I like to take the pressure off and remind all of you that 3,000 years ago, God spoke through Balaam's ass. <laughs> and he still does it today. And I'm going to be the visual aid. <laughs> I was probably best to start by telling you a little bit about us. Um, I'm Frank. Um, really cool. My last name, Friedman, actually means free man. And Frank means free man. So I used to joke that I was free to the second power. And one time I was speaking somewhere, I don't remember where I was, but this boy came up to me. He said, you know how you say that you're free of the second power? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I am too. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, my first name's Frank, but my middle name is Charles. And Charles means free man also. So I'm free of the second power like you. And I said, ooh, baby, my middle name's Charles, so I'm free cube now. <laughs> and was sovereignly named by my parents. And I try with everything I can to live up to my name. I got a sweet bride, Janet. Uh, she is Hispanic. Enough said. Uh, she's a sweetheart. And uh, it was really funny. I met her. She was four foot eleven, And she was 23. And when she was 25, between 23 and 25, she grew two inches. So she's 5'1 now. Isn't that something? But she reached puberty when she married me. But um, <laughs> she was actually a cheerleader in college and cheered against me. Because you know, I played football in college. So I told her, I'm sure I saw her because we always checked out the opposing team's cheerleaders. But I got four kids. One is Leslie. Leslie is in finance. This, look at my retirement plan. This is really cool. Uh, she's in finance. My son, number two, is in law enforcement. So I got somebody with my money and I got somebody to protect me. My number three is going to med school. Cha-ching, cha-ching. <laughs> so I'm demanding that my fourth be an attorney. I'll be set. But um, number two is Ben. He's in law enforcement. He got it out of his system for a while. He went down to South America, lived as a bodyguard for some rich guy and traveled all over the place. But he's come home. My number three, Morgan, she's heading to med school. She's one we don't know where she came from. She's off the charts smart. She comes to you and says, Father, I've been thinking, go to your mother. So it's a great thing. And then number four is a very special little girl with a very, very rare disease. And uh, she has been used of God to keep us dependent. Um, she's a sweetheart, and we love her very much. But she just had her 22nd surgery this February. Uh, we were told by the doctor she would never walk or talk. She does both. And now I have to tell her, sit down and be quiet, which is something I never thought I'd tell her. So that's a little bit about us, and um, I'll tell you more as we go along. Um, let's start by talking about a guy named Morris. You ever heard about Morris? Morris was an 85-year-old guy, and uh, he headed to his doctor, and his doctor gave him some counsel after an uh, examination. And a couple weeks later, the doc saw him on the street, and he was a uh, big old smile on his face, and he had a little hot young girl on his arms. So the doc pulled him aside, and he says, what you doing, Morris? And Morris said, Doc, I'm just doing what you told me. He said, what I tell you? He said, you told me to uh, get a hot mama and be cheerful. And the doctor said, Morris, that's not what I said, sir. I said, you got a heart murmur, be careful. <laughs> communication problems can be funny, right? But communication problems can also be harmful, can also be deadly. How many of you are married? 
Oh, great. Would you like to give some personal testimony? That was, a, that was a quick hand, man. That thing shot up there quick. How's that make you feel? We've got some counseling appointments open next week if you'd like to come. Let me tell you about a guy I know. He was working on Hoover Dam, and he was given the charge to go cut through 11 million volts of wire. And so he went down there, and he just before he checked, he said, I got a bad feeling. So he called the guy, and he says, did you trip that breaker? And the guy said, oh, yeah, I tripped the breaker. No, I just don't feel right about this. So he went up and checked the breakers himself, and the guy had tripped the wrong breaker. Very, very deadly miscommunication. We all know this. Communication problems, we can laugh about them, but sometimes they're very harmful and very deadly. This is especially true, my friends, when it comes to communication between God and man. Because I need you to think about this. If you miss God, you're going to miss life because God is the source of life. Isn't that right? Let's think, in fact, about maybe how we've missed God in the church. I want you to think about five things Jesus promised. He said, I've come that your joy would be made full. He said, my peace I leave you. He said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And why is it abundant? Because it's his life, right? He said, come to me all you who are weak and weary and I'll give you rest. Now, by the way, this is one of my favorites. Because notice, this is for the weak and the weary. This is not for the super saint who's able to pull it off. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's for those of you who can't pull it off. If you are one who can't pull it off, good news, come to me and I will give you rest. By the way, you might want to home in on that Greek word. It's literally the word vacation. And the construction of the Greek language is actually not, I will give you a vacation, but it's, I will vacation you. I'll see to it that you enter into some rest. Isn't that cool? I like that. My favorite one, of course, is you will come to know the truth and the truth will set you free from what? Free from sin, free from guilt, free from shame, right? Free from the law. How about free from other people? Free from having to perform for them. How about the ultimate freedom? What's the ultimate freedom? Freedom from yourself. Freedom from having to take yourself so seriously. Free to be able to laugh at yourself, which you ought to be able to do because you provide a lot of material. Isn't that right? I want you to look at those five things. Joy, rest, peace, freedom, and abundant life. And I want you to think about them. And I want you to take a good, honest look at the church, as you know it, in, in Canada. almost said in America. I've been practicing. Out. <laughs> Love me still? Okay. It's going to get worse. How many Christians do you know that have even two of those things as an abiding presence in their life? How many do you know that have all five? Do you need more than your fingers and toes to count them? Let's meddle a little. How many are in your life? Do you have all five? Do you have even one? Then we have a problem. And the problem, very simple, is that either Jesus then is the biggest liar that ever hit the planet, survey said. Did you ever get that TV show up here? Okay, then y'all ought to clue in right there. Uh, you know, you, you got to contribute here. Survey said? Alright, thank you. You didn't do that very well. Go to the back of the room. Alright. Either Jesus was the biggest liar that ever hit the planet, what? Or the church is missing the gospel. That's what's happening. I want you to think with me. Does Jesus have a problem giving those things? No, if he said he's going to give them, he's going to give them. Then we have a problem receiving those things. Now, we're not talking about a second blessing or a second work of grace. There's a lot of schools of theology that talk about having a second work of grace, a second blessing from God. That is unbiblical because Colossians chapter 2 verse 10 says you are complete in him. By the way, the Greek word complete is the Greek word teleo. It means to the end. We could translate it perfect. You are perfect in him. I like that. You like that? 
I mean, I always wanted to say I was perfect, and I got biblical basis to do it. Isn't that cool? We are perfect in Christ. Another great verse is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Some spiritual blessings are yours in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Is that what it says? It says every. Every means? Every. Do you know what that means in the Greek? It means every. That's exactly right. Every spiritual blessing is already ours. When you receive the Holy Spirit, you received all of Him. You cannot divide a person into parts or He ceases to be a person, gang. So when you receive the Holy Spirit, you received all that God is and all that He longs to be to you. There's no need for a second work or a second blessing. Now what ha- may happen is you are simply releasing more of what you've already had as you learn to depend upon Him. But you didn't get anything else. When you got Christ, you got all. Wonderful. So the real problem, if you think about it, is not in receiving. Because you've already received it all. But it's in knowing or believing or seeing what you've already received. Now, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, verse 17. And then we're going to look at Romans 5, 17 again tomorrow. We're going to look at one verse four times. Because it's a pregnant verse. Okay? There's a lot in there. All right? Now, what I'm going to do tonight, some of you may be very familiar with. Okay? You've got this office. You've got some very wonderful people teaching this message. And you've heard it. Okay? So, some of this may be review for some of you. For you, I will say that we're going to be biblical. And like Peter said, even though you know this, I'm going to teach it to you anyway. One, because you probably forgot it. Two, it helps for sometimes when somebody says it in a different language in a different way. Three, you can never exhaust God. So no matter how much you say you've come to know Him, you can always know Him more because He's an infinite God. You tell me you know God loves you? He loves you more than you know. Because He's an eternal, infinite God. So we're in a continual journey of process and, and uncovering more and more of who he is and more and more of his love and more and more of his grace. In fact, in the New Testament, one of the favorite phrases of the Apostle Paul is much more. I like that phrase. Much more. There's always much more for us. So some of you have heard this. Bear with me. Some of you haven't. We're here for you. This is exciting. A friend of mine named Bob George tells the story of a guy named Mr. Yates. Yates was a sheep herder in West Texas back in the 1930s. True story. During the Great Depression in the United States there, he was going to lose his ranch to some bankers. So some wildcat oil drillers came in. You know what wildcat oil drilling is? Very, very risky deal. And they came to Mr. Yates and said, can we drill on your land? He said, go ahead, it's going to be the banks in two weeks. They drilled on the second day of drilling at a very shallow depth. They hit the richest oil deposit ever found in the history of the state of Texas. The next day, the newspaper headlines came out. Yates becomes millionaire overnight. True story? Absolutely. True headline. Absolutely not. Why? Mr. Yates was always a millionaire. He just didn't know what he had. And that is exactly what I find is happening in the church. The church has been given the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit to live inside of them, but they don't know what they have. And by the way, did you know that the Bible anticipated this phenomenon? We're not going to take the time to turn there because, as you can tell, we're already going fast and we've got a lot to cover. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, when Paul says, Blessed be God, because he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Then what he does is verse 3 through 14, he starts giving you some of the blessings. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He adopted you into his family, which is so cool. You see, if you're a birth child, right, you showed up, they're stuck. But in adoption, what happens? They chose you. They actually wanted you. Isn't that cool? 
How many of you were in kids in school playing like PE stuff and they would always divide up into teams? You remember how that happens in elementary school? Did any of you ever have the, the very unfortunate thing to when they start to get to the end of the kids and they look at each other, the two captains, and they go, all right, I'll take that one, you take those two. <laughs> yeah, you ever? Oh, man. Did you remember the look on those poor little kids' faces? Never happens with God. God looks at you before the foundation of the world and says, I want you on my team. Now, people get all hung up on election. Oh, this is a rabbit trail. My wife says I go on rabbit trails all the time. I tell her what Major Thomas said. If it's a fat rabbit, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Because people get all hung up on this doctrine of election. It is a family doctrine. Whenever I travel around, teach on election, never happens, never fails to happen. Somebody comes to me, what about the guy in Africa? This passage is not talking about the guy in Africa. Don't go there. This is a family doctrine revealed only to the family as if God put his arm around and said, let me, in, let me let you in on a little secret. You think you chose me. I chose you before the foundation of the world. I want you on my team. But what about, don't go there. I'm just telling you how special you are. Let God tell you how special you are. There are other passages that will deal with the guy in Africa. This passage is for you to tell you how much God loves you. Isn't that cool? You are accepted in the Beloved. Right? You have redemption. You were bought with a price. You have forgiveness of sins. You have wisdom and understanding of the plan of God. You've been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment of your inheritance. Which means there's more coming. Again, much more, much more, much more. So in 1, 3 through 14, he goes, look at all that you have. And then guess what he instantly does? He starts praying in verses 15 through 20. I pray you'd understand what you have. So do you see how the New Testament actually anticipated the phenomena that we would have Christians not knowing what they have? Isn't that fascinating? Let me illustrate it to you because illustrations are very important. Ross, let's say this is a checkbook. And I put a million dollars in this checkbook in Ross's name and I put it in the drawer and I never tell him. Is he a millionaire? Yes, he is. There's a bank statement with his name on it. Do you know you're a millionaire? What good is it doing you? Nothing. Nothing. So I come to you and I say, Ross, here's a checkbook, a million dollars in it, brother. I'm giving it to you. Do you now know you're a millionaire? What's the problem? He doesn't believe it. (laughs) Of course not. Why didn't he believe it? One, do you really think I'd have a million dollars to give him? I'm in the ministry, brother, starving for Jesus. Right? We taking an offering a little later? All right. You see how that works? Two, if I had a million, would I be giving it to the likes of him? No, so he doesn't believe it. It's too fantastic to believe. Okay? You with me so far? All right, now his wife, Vira? Viara. VR. I was going to say Elvira. <laughs> Y'all remember her? <laughs> Where am I sleeping tonight? (laughs) Yeah. So she tells him, Ross, you need to pick this up from the store. If you don't get it, I'm going to be very upset. And so it's 5.30, 5.45. He's late getting out. And he heads out the door and he goes, oh, I got to go pick that up for Viara. All right. And he goes, oh, I left my wallet. I don't have it. How am I going to do this? The store's going to close at 6. Oh, that checkbook Frank gave me. It's in the glove compartment. I'll go write a check at the store. I'll bring the thing home to Viara. She'll say, thank you very much. The next morning, I'll get some cash. I'll go back to the store before they deposit the check and I'll swap this thing out. With me? The only problem is he gets there and the store's already cashed the check. Uh Uh-oh. See, this isn't insufficient funds. In his eyes, it's what? 
a fraudulent check. So he starts sweating. 30 days later, it comes in the mail. There it is from the bank. And he opens it up, but instead of a warning about a fraudulent check, it's a bank statement. It says, one check written for 50 bucks. Balance 999950 bucks. Now, when he wrote that check, did he feel like a millionaire? Not at all. So he had to act even though he didn't feel. Now what does he do? He knows. You think he believes? Yeah, he believes. What's he going to do now? He's going to write some checks. <laughs> right? That is exactly... The only formula I know of in the New Testament. No believe, act even if you don't feel, and eventually you will come to feel. So here's what my job is, really. This is what I do. My job is to evangelize Christians. Now, I get people every once in a while, they come out and say, don't you mean evangelize the world? No. No, I really don't. I mean evangelize Christians. You see, if Christians don't know who they are and don't know what they have, you think they're going to go tell the world? No. So you know what we have in this place? Evangelism training. Where we have to train Christians what to say and what to do because they don't have anything worth giving away. And they really don't want to do it. They really don't want to knock on doors and they really don't want to learn all that stuff because they don't believe it themselves. They're not going to share it with conviction. So I think we ought to start over and evangelize the Christians. Let them know what they've got and you won't be able to shut them up. I had a woman in my office, just to give you an example, this is classic. She comes into my office, she'd been coming to me for counseling, and she came off, she said, Pastor Frank, I shared Christ. I said, well, that's exciting. She said, no, you don't understand, I've been a Christian for 22 years. First time I've ever shared Christ. I said, well, tell me about it. She said, well, I was in my backyard listening to a CD. My neighbor poked their head over the fence and said, what you doing? I'm listening to a CD. What's it about? Oh. I spent the next three hours telling her what I've been learning. Letter of Christ. See what I mean? If you let the church in on who they really are and what Christ has really done for them, you don't have to train people to evangelize. Evangelism training will go away. And people will just be who they are and will turn the world upside down. So we want to evangelize Christians. By the way, did you know that's biblical? Tell me about the church in Rome. Paul always wanted to get to Rome, didn't he? Right, you got to engage here. Start calling on you. Call you out, as we call it in the South. I've been called out. Why did he always want to get to Rome? That was not a hard question. Because why? It was the capital of the unknown world. You want to get the gospel to the capital, and from there it'll go everywhere. Problem was, he could never get to Rome. So he wrote a book to Rome to introduce himself and to share his theology. All right? So Rome, the church at Rome, was actually founded by second generation Christians. What? Second generation Christians. People who heard it from somebody else. When Paul wrote in his letter, look what he said in chapter 1, verse 15. I can't wait to get to Rome and share the gospel with you. Who is he writing to? Christians. Can't wait to get there and share the good news with you. I think that's fascinating. In the space of some 23 years, the church was already forgetting and missing the gospel. How many years are we removed? It's like that old telephone game. I tell you something, you tell him, you tell her. By the time he gets over here, it's, it's distorted. You see, and I think one of the major things that we've done in the church is we've made heaven a destination. How many of you were led to Christ like this? How would you like to go to heaven someday? Would you like to have your sins forgiven so you can go to heaven? 
The New Testament talks more about a heaven that's inside of you right now. It talks more about a heaven that you're already in. Heaven in the New Testament is actually almost an afterthought. Hey, come and experience Jesus right now. And by the way, you get to go to heaven someday. That's really the way it is. By the way, if you don't know that, you're going to end up pursuing life instead of experiencing life. Because you'll be looking on the outside where it's already on the inside. That's really insane. So you'll be searching for something you already have so you'll never arrive. You'll be on a destination you can never conclude. What's your name? Bob. Hey, Bob. Hi. I'll give you a chance to redeem yourself from that survey thing earlier. <laughs> it would be like me telling you to get in this room. And Bob says, I'll try. That's what's going on in church. We're telling people to, to, to find more of Jesus. They already got him. To get more, to do more, to experience more. They've already got him. So they're looking for... It's, by the way, that's the ultimate insanity, isn't it? So let's think about the church. What does the church tell us to do? Pray. Fast. Minister. Tithe. Remind me, I've got to change the order of this thing. This one should be first. <laughs> Does it work? No. So what does the church tell us to do? There you go. Does that work? No. So we've got to start to ask ourselves, is there a better way? Yeah, is there a better way? Is there a better way? See, the truth is, the church is telling a lot of people to live for God. But I have news for you, you'll never learn live for God until you learn to live from Him. You'll never be a husband until you're first the bride of Christ. Because you're called to love beyond your, your resources. Love the way Christ loves the church. Love unconditionally. I mean, I could really love Janet if she'd just cooperate. (laughs) You'll never be a parent until you're first a child. You become a child with God so you can draw from God all that He is so you'll be able to parent. Question is how? What we're going to do is we're going to go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. And we're going to tear this verse apart. First of all, let me share this with you. Do you know there is no such thing as a supreme book of the Bible? You know that. Those red letter versions, they're not biblical. Because 2 Timothy chapter 3 says all scripture is inspired. Jesus' words are not more important than the Apostle Paul's. It's all the word of God. It's all inspired. It's all profitable. Right? But, having said that, little disclaimer here, if there was a supreme book of the Bible, it would be the book of Romans. Because there, Paul was writing to a church he never visited to introduce himself, and he said, this is what I believe. This is what I'm about. This is what I think the Bible teaches. Here is my systematic theology. With me? Now, If there were a supreme portion of the book of Romans that's more important than the rest of the book of Romans, it's chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, where Paul gets into the heart of the gospel and what happened in Adam and what happened in Christ. With me? And if there were a supreme verse in the book of Romans, it would be Romans 5, 17. And so, you, sir, do you have a Bible with you? 
Did you bring one? You didn't? May God have mercy on your sin, sick, shriveled up soul. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Somebody got a Bible? Where? Right there? Would you stand up and read that real? You still love me? Okay, I still love you too. Alright, Romans 5.17. Listen to this real carefully. For if, by the, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of the righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Alright, thank you. Now, did you hear what he said? Did you see the four separate parts? Through one man came death. That's bad news. We're going to do the bad news first. We won't end with bad news. God always ends with good news. Then what happened? Those who receive the work of Christ in two ways. Receiving the gift of righteousness. Keyword? Gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't earn it. Nothing you can do. Just say thank you. And the abundance of grace will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. By the way, what is the word reign? Oh, good word. Who said kings? You. Except, you know what? You can't be the king. Royalty. He's the king of kings. Now, you are the kid of the king. What do you call the son of a king? A prince. What do you call the daughter of a king? Princess. You realize some of you have been living with royalty and complaining about it. <laughs> so, did you see the four parts? Death in Adam. Then receive the gift of righteousness, receive the abundance of grace, and you'll reign in life when? Right now. So tonight we're going to do the good news, bad news, in terms of the death in Adam. And then we're going to look at receiving the gift of righteousness. Tomorrow morning we'll look at the meaning of grace, the abundance of grace. What? Tomorrow night. Thank you. And what it means to live through the one Jesus Christ. Okay? With me? Alright. So, I think we need to pray. Can I pray for you? Father, oh, please don't bow your heads. I like to look into the eyes of the people I'm praying for. Father, in Jesus' name, I see a bunch of men and women who are here tonight because they want to know more about you. And that is a really, really good thing. And I pray in Jesus' name that you will open the eyes of the understanding. Like your word says in Ephesians chapter 1. That you will break through with the power of the Holy Spirit to enable them to understand how much you love them and all that you did for them in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, use this frail, weak, human vessel who really is a Balaam's ass to speak truth in such a way that they can receive it by the power of your Spirit. Let's all say it. Amen. I speak a lot on college campuses. I love collegians. If a college calls, I'm there. I will reorganize my calendar to get there. I don't know if you knew this, but every major revival in the United States broke out on college campuses. There's something about collegians. They're full of energy. They're full of challenge. They're, they're naive in many ways. They think they can change the world. In fact, they did in the 1960s, did they not? And so, whenever a college calls, I'm on it because my heart of hearts is, Father, is this the next revival? And, and I want to be a part of it, if he would let me. Wouldn't that be cool? 
So I speak on college campuses a lot. And there was this one time I spoke on this college campus and it was crazy. They put me up on this platform. It was about five feet off the ground. I can't stand platforms, you know, because you're so elevated in God, you know, and so separated from the people, you know. So I was, had these 500 collegians there and I'm up on this platform and I, I looked and I was fed up with it. And so I jumped off the platform and I started to come down. And I said, who are you? And you should have seen this kid. You know, his eyes are about that big. Uh, I said, do you know your name? <laughs> he's like, I'm Kalen. I said, well, who are you, Kalen? He's like, I'm an engineering student. I said, oh, okay. Who are you? I'm Susie. I'm a nursing student. Oh, okay. Who are you? I'm Eric. I'm a graduate assistant. Oh, okay. And who are you? I'm Eric. I'm a Campus Crusade staffer. He was the worst one of the bunch. And I, I did this about eight or ten times. And I stopped and I said, oh, wait a minute now. I thought I was on a college campus. On college campuses, aren't people supposed to be smart? I get it. You're not smart, and that's why you're here. (laughs) Now, I had their attention, and I said, here's my problem. I've asked every one of you a question, not a one of you has answered it. I've asked you who you are, and every one of you told me what you do. What's the matter with you people? Don't you know who you are? It's exactly the problem. You don't know who you are. So I went back to the first kid. I said, Kalen, bark like a dog. He said, what? I said, bark. He said, well, he tried to get cute with me. He said, do you want a chihuahua or a German shepherd? I said, Kalen, just bark. So rough, rough. I said, sir, did that make you a dog? He said, no. I said, well, that's not what the girls you've been dating have told me. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you? That's the question tonight. Who are you? And I want to help you with that question. Whoop, there we go. With a visual. Many of you have seen these visuals before. Um, pictures are very, very important. I don't know if you've ever looked at the way Jesus taught, but he taught in pictures. He said, see this fig tree over there? Look at this mustard seed. See this little kid on my lap? How did Jesus teach? Visually. How do we teach in the church? Verbally. See, we've got to start teaching visually because Jesus created us. He knows how we learn. So visuals are very, very important. So we want to ask this question and say, who are you? And there you are. A visual of man made up of three parts. You have a body and you have a soul and you have a spirit. Body is the Greek word soma. Soul is the Greek word pasuke, from which we get psychology, right? Which is very something, the study of the human personality. So you have a mind, emotions, and will. And you have a spirit. Now, when I travel and teach this, I get a lot of Christianettes who argue with me and say, man is made up of two parts. And I say, why do you say that? And they say, because 90% of all biblical passages use soul and spirit as synonyms. Good for you. 90% of those 90% are in the Old Testament. Let me ask you a question. In the Old Testament, did they have an indwelling spirit? <laughs> so did they need to know that they had a spirit? <laughs> So in Ephesians chapter 3, we read a verse that says there are mysteries, things that were not taught in the old book that are taught in the new, that are a part of a new covenant. What was the new covenant that God said in Ezekiel 36? I will put my spirit inside you. So we had to have a spirit so the Holy Spirit would have some place to dwell. So let's look at some New Testament verbiage. How about 1 Thessalonians 5.23? May God refresh you in your body, your soul, and your spirit. If soul and spirit are synonyms, the Apostle Paul, the great theological mind, was just redundant. Did you see that? Not only that, in the Greek language, he puts a definite article there. 
Say, Frank, what's a definite article? Well, if I were to say to you, anthropos, Greek word for man, you don't know who I'm talking about. But if I put ha anthropos, definite article, ha anthropos, the man, now you know who I'm talking about. See that? It's a mark of distinction, a mark of separateness. If I were to say to you, gune, Greek word for woman. <laughs> I find that hilarious. Guni. <laughs> okay, mixed crowd. All right. Works great at a men's retreat, let me tell you. But if I were to say to you, gune, woman, you don't know who I'm talking about. But when I go, hey, gune, that woman, the woman, now you know who I'm talking about. There is a definite article with each of those. May God refresh you in the body, the soul, the spirit. What's that tell you about mankind? Three parts, baby. Hebrews chapter 4. Whoop, back up one. Verse 12. The word of God is sharper than the two-edged sword, able to divide between the soul and the spirit. If the word of God can be divided between the soul and the spirit, what's that tell you about the soul and the spirit? Two separate things. That's exactly right. Now, this is what sets us apart from the plant and animal world, by the way. Plants have bodies. Plants do not have souls. You may talk to your plant, but your plant doesn't talk back to you. If he does, please see Russ. Um, I've never seen plants cry, plants show emotion. You know, plants have bodies. Animals, on the other hand, have bodies and souls. Right? How many of you have a little Fifi at home? All right. Fifi has emotion. It's going to be happy when you come home. Right? It's sad right now because you're gone. Right? It's got a mind. It can learn tricks. It's got a will. It can choose to obey you or disobey you. So what's that tell you about animals? They have souls. By the way, it's true of the insect world. Insects have souls. Take a wasp nest. Put a stick in it. Does he have a mind to know what's going on? Does he have emotions to get a little upset about what you're doing? And a will to do something about it? Yeah. Insects have souls. By the way, this is so, such good news for all you animal lovers. Since this is an immaterial part, it cannot be destroyed. So what's happening to little Fifi when he leaves his body? He's going somewhere. I get these Christians sometimes. Animals are annihilated. No, they're not. They go somewhere. I don't know where they go, but they're going somewhere. And then he... Some of you, that's probably all you're going to remember tonight. <laughs> <laughs> little Fifi's okay. <laughs> Never mind about me. Fifi's okay. <laughs> we have spirits and that's what separates us from the plant and animal world and if you notice that's because God is a spirit and God made us in his own image so he made us with a spirit so that he could connect to us spirit to spirit in a way that he couldn't connect with anybody else anything else in the universe that he had created so this is obviously then where personhood is found so God could connect to us person to person and have a unique relationship with us by the way that is so cool because we were designed to house the spirit of God when God made man made a little mud pie and he went like this and went oh what do you do it says in the, the Greek in English translation he breathed the breath but did you know in the Hebrew that literally means breath wind or spirit he breathed spirit into man and man became a life soul a living soul a spirit animated soul okay so this was so cool. So the Spirit of God, and I want you to see what he did, because this is dynamite. He put his Spirit in man, so that man could live from the inside out. So here's Frank, and we got a Frank Friedman body, and we got a Frank Friedman soul, and the Spirit of God is in it, 
And so that Spirit of God expresses life through a Frank Freeman personality and Frank Freeman body. Now here we got a Darlene. Now the same Spirit that's in me is in her. But it gets expressed through a Darlene personality and a Darlene Spirit, a Darlene body. And it looks very different from the way I do it, as it should be. Right? We wouldn't want Darlene walking around like this. Right? Hard. <laughs> and we certainly wouldn't want Frank walking around like Darlene. Right? Get arrested for stuff like that. What's my point? God made... What's your name, baby? What? Susan. Susan. God made a Susan so that he could express his life through a Susan in the way that nobody else on the face of the planet could express the life of God. So in other words, if you understand the Bible correctly, you get to be you. Because God wanted one of you. And he set this up so that when every single one of us lets the life of God flow through us, we all look at it differently. But when you put all of us together, there's this incredible panorama of the expression of God and the visible physical world could then look at that and go, wow, so that's what God's like. The church has screwed this whole thing up and made us try to live from the outside in, make everybody do the same, think the same, and act the same. It's as boring as hell. Can you say hell here? Just did. Grace, baby. Well, hell is the source of that stuff. It's hellish. You've seen religions where they all look the same, think the same, act the same. Did you all have Taco Bell up here? Did you ever, did y'all get that Taco Bell commercial years ago? Same place, same thing. Do you all remember that? That's the stupid church. Can you say stupid church? <laughs> now, let, wait a minute. Now, I got, I got, I'm make, I got to clarify. I'm going to say some harsh things about the church this weekend, but I love the church. Okay, I am in the church. One of the biggest beefs I have with people who catch the message is they leave the church. Who's going to fight for the church if nobody's there to fight for? I'm in the church. I'm fighting. But I'm fighting for her, even if I have to fight against her. I'm writing a devotional. That's one of the topics. I learned it from my son. My son is, they, they, his friends call him Jason Bourne. He's been in karate since he was this high. He's built like a Brahma bull. He's this bodyguard for this guy. Travels all over the place. I wouldn't want to mess with him anymore. But when he is in high school, he's getting to be this kid. And he, he was so easy to raise. He's such a compliant kid. But one day he got a little huffy with me. And he said, eh. And I went, eh? Yeah. And so he, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it started to escalate. It was going someplace I didn't want to go. So I stuck my finger in his nose and I said, you listen to me, boy. I will fight for you even if I have to fight against you. He said, wow, Dad, that's good. I said, yeah, i got to go right down. So, <laughs> we got to fight for the church, man. Even if we have to fight against her. So when I say harsh things, it's because I love her. Okay. And sometimes you've you got to snap people out of where they are when you love them. Okay? At least that's what I tell Janet, but she doesn't agree. <laughs> now, you with me so far of how God set this thing up? I'm so good that she's not here. <laughs> You're not duplicating this, are you? No. Nope. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Now, the key question which we said on that collegi- collegiate campus is which one of these determines who you are? So let's think about that for a minute. Can we get an identity out of our body? Sure we can. People do it all the time. How about Arnie Schwarzenegger? I'll be back. How about Pamela Lee? Who's some of the new ones? I said Pamela Lee the other day on college campus. They all looked at me and said, who's that? What's her name? Angelina Jolie. That would work. Or I was thinking that Christina Aguilera. Right? You get an identity out of your body? Yeah. 
See, but if you're going to get an identity out of your body, you got to have a good body, and there's so many, so only so many of us to go around. <laughs> what are you laughing at? <laughs> All right. And by the way, if you get an identity out of your body, what's going to happen to it when it gets older? Visual aid. <laughs> have you ever noticed that Hollywood starlets and stars don't come out when they're in their 70s and 80s? Did you ever notice nobody ever saw Johnny Carson after he retired? Isn't it fascinating? Lost their identity. By the way, there aren't that many good bods to go around, so what do you do if you don't have the good bod? Oh, I'm so fat. Oh, I'm so ugly. Isn't that fun waking up to every day? There are people in my office waking up to that every day. So we can get an identity out of your body. The question is, do we want to? <laughs> Let's get an identity out of our soul. Whoop. Back up. There we go. Let's get an identity out of our mind. If you're going to get an identity out of your mind, what had you better be? Right. What's that mean everybody else has to be? Wrong. Aren't you fun to live with? Who are you with? (laughs) What if you don't have the sharp mind? Oh, I'm so stupid. There are people in this room that say that. Let's get an identity out of the way we feel, out of our emotions. I feel great! What's the problem with that? Five minutes from now, you can feel like sin on a stick. That just click in? (laughs) Can you imagine? Then you're living your life like this. What's it going to be like married to somebody like that? Come home every day going, wonder which one it is. Let's get an identity out of our will. The will is the seat of performance. It's the seat of choosing. So if I, cho- I have to try to choose well. This is the root of obsessive compulsive behavior. This is the root of perfectionism. What happens if I don't do it right? What am I? A failure. And isn't that fun to wake up to every day? So we can get an identity out of our soul. question is what? Do we want to? There's only one thing left, gang. And it's the only place where we were ever designed to get an identity, and that's out of our spirit. Because John chapter 4, again, verse 24 says, God is a spirit, and he made us in his own image. So what are we? Spirit beings that have a personality to express that spirit through a physical body which was made for a physical world. Bob? You're the Bob expression of Jesus. Isn't that cool? That's what we're after. There's only one problem. This is the way God set it up. Isn't it cool? That was not a hard question. Isn't that cool? That is very cool. Problem is, Adam. God set up a no-no tree and he said, In the day that you eat from that no-no tree, you shall surely die. Did he eat? Yes, he did. Did he die? Yes, he did. Did he die in his body that day? Read the scriptures. He lived another four or five hundred years. Did he die in his soul and become a mindless, emotionless robot? Otherwise what? You and I would be mindless, emotionless robots. Now, I've met some people that make me wonder. But that's another story. So, obviously, where did he die? He died in his spirit. Now, when we say dead, we do not mean comatose. We mean dead to God. But it is a very much alive spirit. It's alive to the wrong thing now. It's alive to sin and it's alive to self. 
You with me? So God went, man went from an economy of receiving from God all that he is to all that he needs to an economy of achieving for God and for himself. Now, so here we have the sin of man which separates us from God. Man now is a dead spirit. What does a dead man want more than anything else on this planet? Life. The problem is he cannot get it in his spirit anymore. So what is he going to do? Notice where we drew this. He's going to get, use his body and his soul to try to manipulate his environment and his circumstances to generate life from the outside in. Are you with me? Now, I don't care who you are. What you will do is use, maximize your strengths and minimize your weaknesses to try to accomplish that. And by the way, it starts in the womb. Bring that little baby home. Baby cries. What's mama do? Picks him up or feeds him milk. What's the baby learn? I can cry and get my needs met. I got 40-year-olds crying in, their, in my office to get their needs met. Mama, baby cries. Mama can't come. Mama's taking care of two other kids, cooking and, and on the phone. So the baby throws a tantrum. Mama comes running and wraps the kid on the backside. What's the kid learn? I can cry, but I can't throw tantrums. Or what if she comes and picks the baby up and rewards the tantrum? What's the baby learn? Hey, hey, hey this really works. You see them at the grocery stores. And Proverbs says they're ashamed under their parents. Right? Aunt Sue comes over, looks at the baby and says, What a pretty baby. And the baby acts that. And she goes, oh, and rewards the behavior. And what's the baby learn? I can act cutesy and get my knees met. You bring home all A's. Starting kindergarten and first grade now, what's mom and dad do? Go ballistic. Wow. What'd you learn? I can get to grades and get my needs met. You bring home all A's and one C, but your C is in penmanship. And your dad knocks you around. What do you learn? Nothing I do is ever going to be good enough. Or what? You bust your butt and try harder. See how this works? And every one of us is going to maximize our strengths and minimize our weaknesses. Tell me about a guy named Drew Carey. What do you think of that bod? Can you get a lot of demand for a body like that? No. So what did he use to get his needs met? His sharp mind. Right? Take a Pamela Lee or an, an actress like that. That was really funny. I was on a college campus back in the 90s and I used Pamela Lee. I said, what do you think about her using her mind to get her needs met? And one college kid yelled out, I wouldn't want her as a trivial pursuit partner. <laughs> I wouldn't go out on a date with her though. Yeah, what does she use? Her body. And I don't care who you are. You did this. You learned to function independent of God. You Maximizing your strengths, minimizing your weaknesses, to manipulate your circumstances and the people around you in an effort to control everything around you, to get your needs met independent of God. And the Bible said, in the day that you eat, you shall surely, what? Die. That was not a threat from God. God is not sitting up there with a yardstick. It was a statement of reality. You will enter into the experience of death. Now here's the key. There is a universal law of life that you can only give what you have. 
So if death is what you have, what are you going to give? You're going to give death. Everyone in this room was and has the potential to still be a minister of death. A menace to every other human being we come in contact with if we don't get this crap straightened out. Let me tell you about my baby girl. She's 27 now. She's beautiful. Takes after her mother. Thank God. She was in the Miss Louisiana. She's cheerleader, all this stuff. She's a gorgeous, gorgeous kid. When she was four years old, she was playing out back. And I was working around the house and I had to go to the hardware store. So I ran outside. I said, baby, Leslie, you want to go to the store with me? i got to run to the hardware store. I'll get you an ice cream cone on the way home. Yeah, I'd love to do that, Daddy. Let me go get a dress. I said, baby, I'm going to the hardware store. We don't have to get a dress. Daddy, I have to get a dress. I have to get a dress. I have to get a dress. No, baby. We're just going to the hardware store. I don't shop like your mother. We're not going in there for 50 things. We're going for one thing, in, out. That's called shopping, mail way. And we're just going to go and come home. And she starts crying. I have to get a dress. So I got down on my knees. And I looked at this little kid. And I said, baby, why do you have to wear a dress? And she said, because no one says I'm pretty unless I wear a dress. Now, where was she wearing a dress one day a week and everybody said she was pretty? Them nasty church people again, I'm telling you. No, no, that's not true. They gave innocent compliments. When they saw her during the week in shorts or jeans, none of them thought to compliment her. Here's what's happening. The enemy is already using that in her life to develop sensuality. A sensual flesh pattern. Where she is going to learn to use her body to get her needs met. And if I don't get this straightened out of that little four-year-old girl, she's going to be in the back seat of some slick-talking kid's car when she's 16 years old. This is serious, serious business game. Let's do a little meddling. Okay? Let's look at some types of flesh. This is what we call negative flesh. And some of you have heard this before. This will be my take on it. But this is the person, little kid, growing up. Maybe mom and dad don't have very much money. Uh, he's wearing uh, band shoes when everybody else is wearing Nikes. You know, he's wearing pennies jeans when everybody else is in Wranglers. Maybe mom and dad got divorced. Maybe mom and dad are alcoholic. Uh, mom and dad fight. Uh, not very popular in school, doesn't get very good grades, on and on and on we could go. Put simply, he's living in a world he was never designed to live in. We were designed to live in the Garden of Eden. This is not it. So every one of us experiences things we were never designed to experience. So all of this negative comes at this little kid. You with me? Now the very first thing that happens is the emotions go off. The emotions are kind of like a radar and they scan the horizon. Beep! There it was. That rejection. See? And so I feel unloved and hopeless and helpless and I don't feel significant. I don't feel valued. I don't feel very worthy. Now what happens next is an interesting dynamic. Since I feel this way, it must be true. 
So I get the great shift over to my mind and I start to get a distorted view of myself. I'm just a no good worm occupying space on this planet. I get a distorted view of others. I wish I was like them. I get a distorted view of God. I just know God hates me. You know, if I was God, I'd hate me. Now what happens is I'm developing all of this in my flesh and this is kind of what it looks like. Self-pity. Don't you feel sorry for me? Escaping and withdrawing. Why? You can't fail if you don't try. So it's safer to not try. Just become a little wallflower. Try to not be avoided. Not be noticed. What am I doing? I'm trying to control. It's passive control. But it's control. I perform for acceptance. I'll, I'll go wash Ross's car. Do you like me now? Do you like me now, Ross? Yes. <laughs> you want me to wash your car again? <laughs> he, he wants a good thing. Deep down, I am really one PO'd customer. Because I know I was designed to be loved and I'm not being loved. And by the way, these people get stress problems and health problems. I work with a doctor. He's in my church, so he's come to understand this message. Very smart doctor. If he were here today, he would tell you 70% of what he treats is psychosomatic illness. Psycho, pasuke, soul, soma, body. Genuine body symptoms caused by solical problems. 70% of what he treats. So a lot of times somebody will come to him and he'll say, you know what? You need to go see my friend. And he sends him to me. By the way, I get some people that are so psychosomatic up that they can't hear me and I have to send them to him because he's got to give them some medication and help them get down to the point where they can listen to what I'm saying. So we work hand in hand. But that's what he'll tell you. 70% of what he treats is psychosomatic illness. We're living in a world we were not designed to live in. End result, conflict and frustration. By the way, you know anyone like that? This is the positive. Let's look at that. Again, the same circumstance. But this time, maybe mom and dad are financially well off. Uh, mom and dad are members of the country club. And they've got the Nikes. And you're popular in school. And you get to good grades. And so what's happening to me? Good stuff. Right? So what happens to the emotions? Beep! There they go. What do I feel? I feel strong and secure and confident and worthy and loved and accepted. Since I feel this way, it must be True. So I get a distorted view of myself. Don't you like me? Bob, if I were you, I'd like me. In fact, Bob, if I were you, I'd want to be me. I get a distorted view of God. He should be happy I'm on his side. These are your church leaders and pastors. Now this is what my flesh looks like. I'm full of pride and self-righteousness and judgmentalism. Because everybody ought to do it like me because I do it better than anybody else. By the way, I'm still trying to control. That's the common denominator of flesh. It's always going to try to control. We had to run premarital counseling that. One control freak. Do you covenant with this control freak to put an end to this control before you screw up the marriage? That's usually what... We do our premarital that way. We bring them in, we say, you're a God wannabe, you're a God wannabe. Now, you're here to try to settle this, who's going to be God? I'm going to tell you, he's going to be God. It's the only way this thing's going to work. Still conflict and frustration, because you're working with the negative ones. And they, don't do, they don't control very well. Anyone like this? Anybody know somebody like that? 
The worst one of all, we won't spend a lot of time on this, is the religious person. They're the person that gets saved and starts living out of their religion, tries to do better than ever before. They end up very prideful and judgmental because, you know, they're keeping the Ten Commandments in their own eyes. And then you get the other side, those who can't keep it, and they got guilt and shame. You just can't win. By the way, I have found that about 70% of the time, these people marry these people. These people are needy, these people meet the need. These people have a need and know it, these people have a need and don't know it. <laughs> this works great in the beginning. I mean, little scenario. My wife is an hour late everywhere she goes. I'd rather be an hour early than five minutes late. So you get married. Works great in the beginning, but ten years down the road, are you late again? You knew I was late when you married me. Yeah, but I'd have thought after living with me for ten years, we'd have worked that out of your life. <laughs> Starts to backfire. I have found that about 15% of the time, these people marry these people. They live in a shack on a bayou and raise kids with green teeth. <laughs> Come to Louisiana. I'll show them to you. And then we find that about 15% of the time, these people marry these people. Very, very dangerous. Because they beat the living daylights out of each other. Trying to see who's going to be God. Or, they unite. And it's them against the world. These are your church power play people. You know some of them? Let's give some analogies to this. If we were doing biblical terms, these would be your sinners and tax collectors and harlots. These would be your scribes and Pharisees. We could do batteries. Do you have Kmart up here? Not anymore. Not anymore. Well, these are Kmart batteries. And these are energizers. Right? And again, this one has a problem and knows it, and this one has a problem and doesn't know it. Who's easier to work with? These people. Sure. Who followed Jesus? These people. Who made Jesus' life a real pain? Those people. See, these people, all you got to do is give them revelation into who Jesus is and wants to be to them. These people, God has to kick the crap out of them, get them over here and make them ready to learn. <laughs> Which one are you? Both of those are ministers of death. Both of those are a menace to every other human being they come in contact with. Which one am I? A lot of people think that. They're wrong. This is me. I grew up in an alcoholic home with an al a very abusive physically and emotionally. My father. At the age of 13, I can tell this story without crying. I almost cried today. Did you notice that? I almost killed my father. Shortest kid in school. Third shortest kid in school. It's not the way to grow up. So that's how I grew up. About the age of 13, though, I found out I could run like a deer. I had a guy clock me in the 40 once, told me I was too fast to be white. <laughs> Is that on tape? We better edit that one. But it was true. It was a coach. He said, we're going to check your heritage, son. And I found out I could kick a ball a country mile. That brought athletics. Athletics brings popularity. Popularity brings girls. That's very important. I brought all that into seminary. Became a Christian, brought it into seminary. Ended up student body president. Pfft, so what? My trophy's sitting in the attic collecting dust. 
I was this and knew there was no life there. I became that, tried to find life there, neither one of them worked. That's what we want. That's what we want. We want to put God back in the man. So that man can once again return to his original design back in the Garden of Eden. And express the life of God through his unique personality and his unique body in a way that nobody else can do it on the face of the planet. And get free to be uniquely me. And actually start to like who we are. And be comfortable in our own skin. And be comfortable doing nothing. Being okay doing nothing. Most of us don't know how to do that. And we say no to this. Those little flesh patterns we learned to manipulate our environment. By the way, did you notice they don't go away? (laughs) Bad news. (laughs) Good news. Jesus is available every moment of every day of your life. So you don't have to walk in this anymore. What's the six million dollar question? How? How are we going to get there? That's next hour. Are we taking a break? We'll do that next.